Thursday evening. Time for some jazz. Hope you're feeling good this evening. Got some great artists selected today. Five songs and stories with some classic jazz pieces selected for you. Going to start it all off with a little Miles Davis. From his seminal, classic 1959 release from the album Kind of Blue. The one that kind of changed things for every artist thereafter and is one of the landmark recordings in jazz music history. I listen to this album quite possibly at least once a week, sometimes twice, and that's no word of a lie. I love this record, and I do listen to the record. I have the remastered 180-gram vinyl pressing, and I, uh, yeah, I like it on the turntable. But since this is a podcast, you'll have to settle for the digital version, which actually is quite spectacular. It doesn't have quite the warmth that the uh, vinyl version does, but then again, you need to have uh, serious dollars invested into your sound system to achieve that warmth. So without any further ado, this is Miles Davis, Freddy Freeloader.
Davis from the landmark recording, the album released in 1959, Kind of Blue. Now that lineup was pretty spectacular. Of course, Miles Davis as bandleader on trumpet, Julian Cannonball Adderley alto saxophone, the great John Coltrane tenor saxophone, Winton Kelly on piano, Paul Chambers double bass, and the legendary Jimmy Cobb on the drums. It was the second release, the second track off of the album, and it's it's kind of a unique form because it's written in sort of a 12-bar blues, B-flat style. I'm not a musician, so I don't fully understand modals and notations, and but I love the music. That record really did change jazz because it was very much a free form. It was kind of a guided jam, if you will. It's known as modal jazz, and of course Miles Davis had written the composition, but he left a lot of room for the other players involved to do kind of what they wanted, which was not commonplace for Miles. Miles was always known as a bit of a taskmaster in the studio. He had things pretty much laid out in his mind on how he wanted them to go. But he, he gave the uh, additional musicians and the, uh, the other musicians in, in this particular instance uh, a lot of uh, free room to play. Okay. Second composition for today is um, a bossa nova groove, which I've not actually featured any bossa nova jazz. And uh, I'm going to send this one out to my friend Linda and my dear friend uh, Ozzy, because I know Ozzy loves bossa nova. This is a Brazilian bossa nova piece, as interpreted by the late, great Oscar Peterson.
Anderson with his interpretation of the Aesiobium recording wave, or the Aesiobium composition wave. That recording, I believe, is from 1964, but I've had a hard time trying to determine exactly when. That cut was from the 1991 compilation album uh, from Verve Re- of Verve Recordings, while Oscar Peterson was recording with Verve. Verve, my goodness gracious. Perhaps I need a a frosty, cool, refreshing malted beverage. I think I will have one. On tap today is Tatra, a lovely Polish pint. So, the composition wave has become a jazz standard from A.C. Carlos, uh, and, well, A.C. Hobim, Antonio Carlos Hobim, full name, Antonio Carlos Brilliero de Almida Hobim. He also went by Tom Hobin and Tom Du Vinius. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly. Uh, he was kind of a soul bossa nova style jazz artist, a magnificent flautist. He passed away in 1994. He was quite young at the time. He was only 67. Uh, he was famous for bossa nova, Latin jazz, samba, and uh, really did help introduce it to a lot of people who otherwise would not have been familiar. He recorded with a number of artists throughout the decades, and some of his compositions have just lived on quite literally forever. They've become absolute jazz standards. Ella Fitzgerald and Frank Sinatra have recorded a number of his pieces, along with, of course, Oscar Peterson, Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea, and Toots Thielmans. Another brilliant composition. Wave, and I absolutely love Oscar's rendition of it and his own personal interpretation because he really was the Maharaja of the keyboard. Boy, do I miss Oscar Peterson. I do love to visit his statue, and I I know I've told you this many times before, but I'm going to tell you again. It's just at the end of my street, right at the National Arts Center, right here in Ottawa, Canada. Okay. I want to play a composition now from um, um, an equally, I guess you could say, a peer of Oscars, Mr. McCoy Tyner. I had the unique privilege of seeing him in concert about uh, 12, 14 years ago. He was one of the headliners at the Ottawa Jazz Fest, and he put on a spectacular show. Uh, This is from the album The Real McCoy. This is Search for Peace. Thank you. 
not actually been disclosed what uh, his final cause of death was. We can speculate it may have been COVID-related, but uh, he'd, he'd not been healthy for some time. He was 81, though, so he, he did give us, my goodness, almost 50 years of music, I think. 
perhaps even longer than that. When did he first get started? 1960. So yeah, 60 years of music. Musician, composer, bandleader, jazz and avant-garde jazz. The magnificent Alfred McCoy Tyner. From Philadelphia, he had, uh, well, he'd, he'd, he'd uh, played with uh, Art Davis, Elvin Jones, Benny Golson, amongst other contemporaries of his tan- time, John Coltrane, Johnny Hartman, Miles Davis, of course. And there, you will, I think you absolutely have to admit that there's, there are traces of Oscar Peterson in, in his playing. And I think that Toots Thielmans was um, kind of using Tyner to just sort of nip, nip away at Oscar Peterson's uh, very early successful career in uh, our very successful career in the early 1960s um, he had a very large share of the jazz market at the time so when oscar toured he did incredibly well around the world he rarely ever played to less than a packed house wherever it was but this uh, this record the real mccoy um basically a five-star rating across the board by every single critic that's ever uh, reviewed the album. That wasn't the longest. That was actually one of the shorter pieces on the record. Of course, featuring Joe Henderson, tenor saxophone, Ron Carter on the bass, and Elvin Jones, the great Elvin Jones on drums. That's, um, the, the idea behind that particular song, he said, uh, Search for Peace was, uh, he, he was. It had. He said it felt that that it had a tranquil feeling, and it has to do with a man's submission to God, and the giving over of the self to the universe. Whoa, that's a little deep. So, for those of you, I, I haven't featured McCoy nearly enough, to be quite honest, and I think I'm going to start to feature him a little bit more because I have a number of his recordings, and uh, well, he was a genius. And I, like I said, I was lucky enough to have witnessed him, witness him live in concert. So, in the upcoming shows, I will feature him a little bit more. He recorded with, well, basically a who's who of uh, the jazz music genre for the sixty years of his career. He was uh, known and known. He was. Let me try and let me try and say that again. He was a National Endowment for the Arts jazz master and a five-time Grammy Award winner. He never played electric keyboards or any type of synthesizer. He really was committed to acoustic instrumentation. Widely imitated, one of the most influential and recognizable pianists in the history of jazz music. Of course, he did stand behind Oscar. I'm not dissing anybody here. I'm just stating a simple fact. Okay, so I'm going to feature a guitar jazz player now. A man who uh, was 18 when this was recorded. I'm not kidding. He was 18 years old when this was recorded. And it was released um, uh, on his 20th, right around this, right around, just before actually, just before, oh, my, my apologies, just after his 20th birthday. So this was recorded in November um, on the 4th and 15th of 1963 
It wasn't released until uh, February of 1965. He turned 20 in January, late January of 65. This was recorded at the Van Gelder Studio in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, one of the most famous jazz recording studios of all time by one of the most famous engineers in jazz history. This particular composition is, uh, well, it's called Idle Hands. Or, sorry, <laughs> not Idle Hands. Terrible, terrible misstep on my part. Idle Moments from the album Idle Moments. This is the uh, brilliant Grant Green.
the late great Grant Green. Idle Moments, recorded in 1963 when he was 18 years of age. The song clocks in at about 14 minutes and 56 seconds. Four seconds shy of the 15 minute mark. Now the album of course is best known for that particular composition which was actually written by the producer of the record, uh, Duke Pearson. He was also the uh, pianist on that particular composition. Now, uh, Mr. Pearson, he he wrote the song, and and of course, when uh, if you are to read the ever ever to come across the album and read through the liner notes, it's something as I'm sure you can well guess that I do all the time. He said that song was never meant to be a 15-minute piece, but the musicians repeated the main melody twice, and there's a little bit of confusion over whether or not uh, one chorus would consist of 16 or 32 measures. But the uh, producer at the time, again, Duke Pearson was an in-house producer at the Van Gelder Studios, but on this particular recording, it was Alfred Lyon. He said he was quite satisfied with the take, but uh, he did suggest that they redo it to fit the the song into a uh, seven-minute limit. They tried several times, but they said, you know what, they they could never capture the magic again of of how the original 15-minute recording went. So all of the subsequent uh, secondary and uh, third takes were never released, and they've always been left off. Now, um, on the uh, CD release, which I guess was released in 1998, they have two additional tracks on the CD, which were alternate takes for two other tracks on the CD. I know that's a little confusing, but uh, slightly longer versions of each particular song and um, different variations. They went with the shorter versions for the album release. But as I said... um, Idle Moments, just simply, they could never recapture the magic again. It's one of the uh, 17 essential hard bop recordings. Like I said, the man was only 18 years of age at the time. Quite remarkable when you think about it. Of course, Grant Green did, uh, he pass away, pass, pass away, passed away uh, very young. He was only 43 years of age when he died in 1979. He had been ill for uh, a few months and had spent some time in hospital, but I guess throughout 1978, uh, he was in and out of hospital, and then against the advice of his doctors, he went back out on the road to earn some money. I think that has to do with um, a lack of uh, social safety net, along with um, high personal insurance costs for health care and no um, single-payer option. Not trying to get political, just stating a simple fact. He he was in New York City, um, booked to play an engagement at uh, George Benson's Breezing Lounge. George Benson had an album called Breezing, and uh, I think I featured that once in the past. But he, uh, he collapsed in his car and, and died of a heart attack on the 31st of January, 1979. Very sad. 
Of course, uh, Mr. Green was uh, a staunch uh, supporter of the Gibson brand of guitars. And he used the Gibson ES330, which is a very uh, big uh, guitar. Big, thick, mostly acoustic, although electric guitar. Well known in jazz circles, but also the rockabilly style. Love the ES330 for its big tonal sound. So, we're reaching towards the end of the show. We're not quite there yet. I do have one more composition for you today. And this one is a a little bit more recent. It's um, by a a younger artist. He is uh, 38 years of age, but uh, he recorded this song uh, at the age of 30. This was uh, going back to 2012. And... I just love the title of the song. Well, I mean, I I do love the song, but the title itself is, well, really cool. It's from his second record, uh, titled, and, and the title of the album is When the Heart Emerges Glistening. Think on that for a minute. This is the uh, lead-off track from the album, titled Confessions to My Unborn Daughter. This is Mr. Ambrose, I hope I say his last name correctly, Akinusir.
confessions to my unborn daughter. When the Heart Emerges Glistening is the title of the album. The artist, Ambrose Ikinusiri. I think I pronounced that correctly. I certainly hope I did. Young man of 38 years of age. I was incorrect. He, that was recorded in 2010, released in 2018, or 2011. My goodness gracious. I'm getting numbers mixed up in my head. He was uh, uh, 28 at the time that that was recorded. Mr. Uh, Akinmusiri, Ambrose. I don't know him personally, so I, I feel that addressing him by his surname is probably correct. Uh, he has a total of uh, six full-length albums released as a uh, frontman or band leader, of course, uh, first being in 2008, Prelude to Cora, the second, 2011, When the Heart Emerges Glistening. His third album, released in 2014. I love the title of his records. The Imagined Savior is Far Easier to Paint. In 2017, he had a double live CD recorded at the Village Vanguard, a rift in decorum, live at the Village Vanguard. 2018, he went with a real simple title. Complex, but simple at the same time. Origami Harvest. And in June of 2020, he released his latest album for Blue Note Records, On the Tender Spot of Every Calloused Heart. I love his album titles. He has uh, been a sideman on approximately 40 recordings. So at 30 years of age, 38 years of age, pardon me, 38 years of age, he is really uh, building his resume. He's played the uh, Monterey Pop Festival, the New Orleans Jazz Festival, and has toured around the world. Of course, everybody is, you know, sitting tight currently. He, um... He was featured on the last track of uh, Kendrick Lamar's 2015 release, To Pimp a Butterfly. Of course, Kendrick Lamar is more of a pop artist, so when you, when you bring in a, a brilliant jazz uh, trumpeter, you definitely have an ear for things. So Mr. Ikinmissuri studied at the Manhattan School of Music. Of course, he's originally from Oakland, California, but... Uh, he decided that um, he'd study uh, his master's degree at the University of Southern California, where he uh, attended the uh, Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz in Los Angeles. An absolutely incredible player. Now, you could call that, I guess, hard bop? Perhaps acid jazz on the edge. I think Miles Davis would be impressed. There's definitely hints of John Coltrane's A Love Supreme. I know not John Coltrane was a sax player, but the style that you heard was somewhat similar. Please correct me if you feel that I'm wrong. Okay. So we've reached the end of today's program. You have uh, a lovely hour plus of songs and stories. I felt motivated today to put a playlist together. Um, I didn't actually put it together so much as I just winged it. I played the first song, and then the rest of them just sort of came to me. So while the songs were playing, I was 
doing some research on the artists because I don't know everything about every artist, of course. I mean, this is uh, part 18, I believe, of the jazz uh, supplemental edition, or supplemental jazz edition of Songs and Stories. Songs and Stories is up to uh, volume 84. 85 I'll be recording in a few days. So 84 volumes of Songs and Stories. Uh, and 18 supplemental jazz editions. That's a lot of music. And I've enjoyed every split second of it. It's been an absolute pleasure for me to do this because it's a wonderful outlet for me. Well, we're looking at a bit of a shutdown again in the future, so my output may increase over the course of the summer, of course. I was, uh, well, that's rather redundant, over the course of the summer, of course. <laughs> over the course of the summer I was working, uh, I started back to work in my uh, occupation uh, on the 4th of June, and, and it has not let up since. We've been incredibly busy. I don't foresee it slowing down anytime soon, but as more and more things shut down and there's less to do outside of my uh, work day, I anticipate I'll be recording more often. So, if you enjoy this program and the pop music show as well, well please feel free to uh, share it with others. Um, and if you have the time, subscribe to my Mixcloud page. This is not a money-making venture for me. Uh, it's it's not uh, it's not about uh, it's not about money. But the reason I use Mixcloud is that these artists get paid, or their estate, their heirs, whichever the case may be. Each time you stream it, Mixcloud pays a royalty to the particular artist that you just listened to. So please feel free to share this with anyone, anywhere, and. If you like, subscribe to my, Mitch, my Mixcloud page as there's a, a copious amount of uh, content there for you. Okay, I'm beginning to babble and it's getting to dinner time for me as it's almost 7 p.m. My goodness gracious. Everyone, please, if you're listening and you hear my voice, relax, enjoy the jazz and remember this too shall pass. Until we meet again, my friends, take care. Bye.